0: As a free, not-for-profit service, Cradio requires the support of people like you to help keep us going in our mission. To donate, visit cradio.org.au slash donate. Conversations with Daniel Noor. Tackling the tough questions on cradio.org.au Hello, Cradio listeners. My name is Daniel Noor, and when I entered the Catholic Church on September the 21st, 2013, I brought all my confusion, anxiety, and uncertainty right in with me. As a young journalist searching for the truth, every week I'll be interviewing an expert on a hot topic and trying to get straight answers on the moral, political, and social issues of our time. I invite you to join me and to have your questions about today's tough topics answered as well. This is Conversations with Daniel Noor. This episode is the first in a series on the global refugee crisis. An unprecedented 65.6 million people around the world have been forced from home. Among them are nearly half of whom... Uh, 22.5 million refugees, to be exact, who are under the age of 18. There are also 10 million stateless people who have been denied a nationality and access to basic rights such as education, healthcare, employment and freedom of movement. These statistics, these staggering statistics, come from UNHCR, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, and Naomi Steer, the founding national director of Australia for UNHCR, is our very honoured guest today. Naomi was appointed to the position in 2000, and she regularly visits UNHCR operations in the field and is an active advocate for refugee rights in Australia and abroad. Naomi, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Daniel. Um, I wanted to get a little bit of overall context to start for our listeners, and so I suppose if you could speak to contributing factors which just
1: make the scale of this displacement so unprecedented, yeah you know, I think one of the really important uh, points to make up front you know people often talk about um, refugee crisis global refugee crisis, but as you 've pointed out daniel it 's very much a, if anything, a crisis of displacement um, and in those numbers that you quoted, you know over sixty five million people displaced. Actually, only about a third of those are refugees, that is people who under the Refugee Convention have been forced to flee their country because of persecution. Uh, And the other two-thirds, the overwhelming number who make up displaced people worldwide today are internally displaced and those um those numbers of internally displaced have actually doubled uh, certainly in the time that i've been working with it with australia for UNHCR, and, and and that really is is the new phenomena of of, of global displacement why are people um uh displaced at, at record numbers within their own countries Look, it's a very sort of a complex um, area, and there are a number of reasons. But um, there are a number of global megatrends we would, you know, which we talk about: uh, population growth in in the south, a huge youth bulge, uh, as it's described, climate change, which is having a devastating impact on on um, many many um, countries in the global south. Um, migration from rural areas to urbanization all creating greater pressures um, and coming together under all of this greater scarcity uh, around food water and 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 energy resources so in some ways we're living through this time of sort of the perfect storm where all these mega trends have, have come together um, creating much more conflict
0: Naomi, it isn't I'm so sorry to, to cut you off there I mean you speak of, of mega, Trends. Is there a reason, perhaps, that you know we're seeing um, an enormous um, and maybe an unprecedented scale to the crisis? I mean, there have been some of those factors that you've mentioned in the past. You know, certainly there there have been uh, issues of conflict. Uh, Climate change isn't completely new to us, and, and its severity has been felt in the last few years. But I suppose what I'm particularly interested in is is why now, why have things come to a head and in what way have they come to a head?
1: Because I think at no time in our history have we all, and, and you're right that, you know, these various phenomena have been present with us, you know, to some extent since time immemorial, but we're living through a time where they're all happening right now as we live right now, and uh, that's led to multiplying crises and deepening crises, and I think what you see when you look at the kind of conflicts that are are driving displacement around the world, you have long-standing conflicts, which um, which appear intractable and there doesn't seem to be that um, determination at the international level to really bring about an end to them. And and two, uh, the two biggest situations I refer to there are Somalia and Afghanistan, which are respectively in their third and fourth um, decades now you know, and one of my, you know, first missions when I first um, started with Australia for UNHCR was uh, to Afghanistan. And it was just six months after the Taliban had been uh, defeated and, and fled. And it was a a very optimistic time in Afghanistan. It was about 2002. Um, People were just um, emerging from really a sort of decade of of terrible repression. And people were voting with their feet, with great optimism returning to Afghanistan from neighboring countries. Um, And in the space of six months when I was there, something like 4 million people returned to Afghanistan. Totally unprecedented. But, you know, they were coming back thinking that they were going to find a country that was going to be supported in infrastructure, that there was going to be a lot more development, that schools were going to be built, hospital-opened open roads. And and what happened very quickly was there was this sort of moment of great global attention which very quickly shifted to Iraq and Afghanistan was left. And those 4 million people have now dispersed again to <laughs> the surrounding countries and and I use this Daniel as a great example when people say what can we do well I saw firsthand what we can do when a country is able to live in some relatively st- stability or peace people will return to their homes and refugee numbers in that one year went down very dramatically but if people don't get the support and there isn't the hope for uh, security and stability and and, and development People will leave again um, uh, and, and and we see that in those situations, yes.
0: I, I do want to pick up on something that you said there that's very interesting. You said that you have found that people, if the circumstances allow, want to return to their homes. Have you encountered in your work a myth or a prejudice that I suppose presupposes this concept that refugees are in fact exploiting the resources or the goodwill of other countries and have no desire to make things work for themselves and their families
1: in their countries of origin yeah I, I, I- I think there is certainly a perception in some quarters um, that you know refugees are very much mixed up now with economic migrants. And of course, as the, the refugee agency, we're very concerned to distinguish the two. It's not to undermine the um, needs and legitimacy of people seeking to, to move countries for better work opportunities, better opportunities their families, for their families. But what distinguishes refugees is obviously they're fleeing from war, conflict and, and persecution um, and I don't think I've met any refugees, and I say this with hand on heart, who haven't said to me that their number one dream would be able to return to their home in peace. Yes. And it's in fact why so many people, when they flee, don't go that far in reality. It's to the neighbouring countries.
0: Yes, and it seems to me that in our world today uh, the the top countries, the, the hosting countries, are those which seem ill-placed or kind of least disposed capacity-wise to take on more people, places like Jordan, Pakistan, Lebanon. Is that fair?
1: I, I, I think... It's, it's absolutely true that when you look at the uh, overall the uh, countries that host the largest number of refugees, it's also those countries with often the least resources. And you raise Lebanon and Turkey um, and, and Jordan, and one, they illustrate my point. People, you know, I've spoken to people across those areas, you know, people have fled into Lebanon, but they want to be in distance of their homes on the other side in Syria, right? <laughs> so They actually don't want to be in Europe or rest- Australia, they want to be there. But, you know, of course, as these um, situations have have continued and the host countries, countries like Lebanon now are really kind of struggling with the very large numbers of of people who are living there, um, people can see that that their opportunities for themselves and families are diminishing Again, when I speak to refugee families, the kind of two things, the immediate things that they want are number one, security, and number two, education for their children, because that at least is hope. Before we flesh out even further,
0: you know, exactly what can be done and how both national and kind of international uh, responses uh, can can help, I'm just looking to... um, kind of look into some of these causes that you've mentioned. So you said that there was persecution. Is there a scale or um, a level of persecution that is particularly severe in the world today? I'm thinking of Kurds across Kurdistan, Yazidis in northern Iraq, Christians in Syria and Egypt and across the Middle East, Rohingya in in Bangladesh. Are we seeing a level perhaps of religious persecution that is new?
1: I'm not sure about that, but certainly I think the levels of internal um, conflict and um, internal dissent within in countries would appear to have risen over the last decade. And, again, you've seen a very big shift in um, global power um, and, and structures um, following the end of the Cold War. Um, and, uh, you know, to some extent, um, the those old power structures sort of kept some stability.
0: Socioeconomic structures, do you mean?
1: So socioeconomic, political. Uh, uh, with the end of the Cold War, you saw a whole lot of the old um, um, tensions and maybe prejudices. N- not so much tensions, but you look at sort of Soviet Union, for example, which broke apart, right? Right. Um, and very much sort of back into various um, ethnic communities and and groups and without any greater sort of support um, to a lot of those communities, you know, I think they have felt very marginalised uh i i'm not sure whether it's necessarily a, about religion that's often obviously in sort of current conflicts you know at the top of it but when you delve deeper you, you know you see these much deeper forces yes. which i referred to before which are really driving it religion might be the kind of top of the tip of the iceberg right. if that is most obvious to us but when you go and look beneath that iceberg there are many other deeper reasons and they seem so intractable
0: and as you say kind of deep. So just what what can be done when you have perhaps political, uh, if you like, benefit or gain to be had, or if you have some kind of, I don't know, uh, national economic interest at play, just what can be done uh, from maybe an international level, Naomi, to, to counter that? And those forces which precipitate and maybe even cause the continuation, the ongoing continuation of long, long conflicts. What Just what
1: can be done? Well, see, I think there are a number of things that can be done at both kind of the individual level the level of myself yourself you know listeners to your podcast um countries like australia have a really important role to play and of course globally as a sort of the international community has kind of a a huge part to play um, if i if i take what we can do obviously you know i i've always one of the sort of great things about being involved in australia for you and hcr and as as you have through Caritas and the many other um, charities and non-government organisations that are very active in Australia, is mobilising individual support um, to help people in countries many thousands of miles away, often for people we will never meet. But because of this kind of shared sense of humanity, and as I say to people, Daniel, if you have the opportunity to help, and that's very much, you know, one of my guiding mantras, then you should use that opportunity. You have. You were talking about moral and ethical um, um, considerations, maybe sure. Well. To, to me, very much, that is a moral obligation. If we have the opportunity to help somebody, we should. And it's a, a very um, rewarding experience. At, at a country level, I think, and, and Australia has been a very sort of good supporter of refugees in the past, both as a donor to UNHCR and other international organisations, and as a um, country that has resettled large numbers of, of refugees But our international aid um, has been cut dramatically over the last couple of years. Um, There is no... Uh, very minimal aid now flowing to many of the regions um, that are are deeply affected by these conflicts, East Africa for, for one, although the government has been very generous with emergency and humanitarian aid. And that trend of our government is echoed with many other governments now. And you see that with the U.S., threatening um, uh, the, the aid budget. But yes, I, what, I, one
0: person in particular yeah, in the US.
1: Well, well, I'd say as countries you can't have it both ways. You can't say, oh, you, you know, people are on the move but we can't have them here and we're not going to open our borders but then do nothing to support people in the, their own countries who are really in countries that are being really whacked from all sides by the these global trends, so I think we have to get that get real about that. Internationally, there's actually some some really interesting and positive things that are happening right now, and I think it's good to talk about those because I think often we think it's also negative. <laughs> it is just you know it are strange times we might say we we were living through that perhaps you know even five years ago we had leaders that we never thought we would we would see. Um, But uh, internationally, UNHCR has been driving a really important initiative called the Comprehensive Refugee Response, and that came out of um, the New York Declaration uh, for Refugees and Migrants, um, which was a very important um, moment um, at the UN in 2016 when 193 member states of the United Nations came together and made... What is really a historic and very wide-ranging commitments Um, to respect the human rights of refugees and migrants and to support, and this is the really important thing, to support the countries that that welcome them. And the Comprehensive Refugee Response Framework is part of that and that's looking at very practical measures uh, and recognising in many of these protracted situations that that you have. You know, um, I've spoken about, you know, Somali refugees, Afghan refugees. I've been working for many years in East Africa um, in places like Uganda, where uh, there are these invisible, um, I guess, um, emergencies, where you have large numbers of people from the Democratic Republic of Congo or Burundi or South Sudan um, that often get very little media attention, but have been living now in these settlements for many, many years. Because I've been with the organisation for 17 years, I've now met grandfathers who you know. <laughs> mothers and their children who are now being born in refugee settlements. I just do want to pick up on something
0: there about what you've said uh, about kind of the length and the, um, I don't know, the, the history maybe that, that you've seen of, of these crises. that You have immersed yourself or been exposed to int- seemingly intractable long uh, conflict situations and you've seen the displacement firsthand. Uh, earlier on, you mentioned that we're being led now by uh, a man who I think many people would not have uh, foreseen. I mean, the, the president of the United States. I mean, so uh, to close, and, and just as you're as you're wrapping up there, maybe about the the, uh, the UN response. Have you noticed a change in the response of the Australian community and of publics, you know, citizens t- towards? towards refugees and, and uh, towards refugee policy in some way. And I might just leave that with you as, as we draw to a close.
1: I'll just finish on the comprehensive refugee response um, and then sort of come back to those sort of key points you, you've asked for comment on. The, the comprehensive uh, refugee response is is about um, supporting countries and the communities who host populations, and we've been doing that at Australia for UNHCR for some time. Um, And it's not what I say is rocket science, but it's certainly about recognising that refugees in many situations aren't going to be able to return um uh home um you, you know in the foreseeable future and that there's also you, you, you know the host communities that they also need support in hosting um, long-term refugee populations so if i use an example of nakavali refugee camp where we've been operating near the congolese border in uganda for many years we've built schools that both both the um, local population and the refugee population can attend together. We've been hospitals that are now being used by, you know, the local population and also refugees, vocational training centres. So um, that where young people, of which when you go into any refugee camp, there are thousands and thousands, can get skills that they can get jobs and integrate in the local community. So not just waiting for charity or National aid, but can actually um, contribute the very considerable skills that that refugees have. Um, and to me, this is the the really important turning point. And something in Australia, we were also seeing a, a little bit when the the government announced the intake of um, twelve thousand refugees. And in our own state, in New South Wales. The previous premier, um, Mike Baird, was very active in setting up refugee support groups, making links with um, Corporate Australia, asking them to mentor newly arrived refugees, uh, provide employment opportunities, um, and really sort of act in solidarity. Um, and through those experiences, Daniel, I think sometimes it's schizophrenic. The debate in Australia is sometimes very poisonous, but I come across all the time great examples of individual, individual Australians, um, corporate, um, corporate Australia doing really fantastic things. Um, so I remain really optimistic. I think the important thing is if you can show the positive and if you can show the impact of um, supporting uh, refugees both here and in Australia, Australians do really respond to that. Um, and I think that is part of um, all our responsibility as advocates for refugees. And and you end on a hopeful note, um, Naomi, which I
0: think is important. I, I, I don't think one needs to show a particular bias even in a political way or ideologically to know that there is some kind of uh, appeal to... conscience here and and just our humanity to to know that it is it is easy to turn away and to ignore the needs of others so i thank you so much for explaining the crisis from that kind of overall level and as as well as that uh, appealing to kind of the better
1: part of our uh, i don't know our national conscience if you like i really appreciate that and i just say one thing on that i just remind everyone we are all one humanity, we are one species, and we all live on one planet. You know, what we share is so much, much more than than the differences that we think we might have. Indeed. Um, Naomi, thank you so much for joining us today. It was, I have to
0: say, I, I enjoyed it enormously. Thank you. And I have too. Thanks very much, Daniel. Lovely. And to our listeners, I'd like to say thanks once again for listening to Conversations with Daniel Noor. If you've enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to Conversations by searching iTunes for Cradio or Conversations with Daniel Noor. You can also share it with a friend who might be interested in the global refugee crisis. Also, do us a favour and give us a five-star rating. The way the iTunes algorithm works is that any episodes you rate highly are more likely to be seen, which helps us to get the good word out there. Finally, subscribe to the Cradio newsletter by clicking subscribe on
1: cradio.org.au. Bye.